are Locked On Trailblazers, your daily Portland Trailblazers podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hey everyone, it's Eric Garcia Gunderson here, your host of Locked On Blazers, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Welcome back to the show. It's been a while, but for those of you who love this podcast and specifically love the podcast with Corbin Smith and myself that we have on here, uh, basically weekly, especially throughout the basketball season, uh, this one was really fun. We are joined by Ken Forkish of Ken's Artisan Pizza, Ken's Artisan Bakery, James Beard Award winner. Uh, amazing baker, creates amazing pizza, amazing food, amazing bread. And he lives here in Portland. Uh, he's been here for a long time, and he's really been a big part of, uh, you know, the part of the development uh, here in Portland of the baking scene, especially and the food scene in general. Uh, so, uh, f- you know, for those of you who are big fans or are fans at all of the podcast that Corbin and I do sometimes, uh, I think you're really gonna like this one. We really got to. Uh, kind of dig in deep and get to know him more, uh, get to know more about his preferences, you know, culinarily. We also talked to him about, you know, his Blazers fandom, uh, what kind of sports he was into, what kind of got him into baking in general. So, uh, you know, really fun conversation. It's a little bit different. It's not, um, you know, a deep dive into the salary cap issues of the Blazers, which have been the same for you know, four years now, three years now, uh, so, uh, or three years, uh, this is going to be the third one, but, you know, so it's not going to have any new things on that, we're not, you know, don't have any trade rumors to talk about, you know, there's the Jimmy Butler stuff that's happening, but he's not going to get traded to Portland, that's not going to happen, um, I highly doubt that Tom Thibodeau is going to do that, um, and I, I think, you know, there are rumors about him maybe eyeing the Lakers. And, you know, if he's a free agent, he'll probably do that. So, um, you know, that's where we stand on some of the, the hot-button rumors as it stands right now. So there's really not a lot to talk about with the Blazers, to be honest. Um, so we're going to take you uh, – I mean, we talked Blazers in this conversation with Ken. Uh, so I think you're going to like that. I think, you know, if you really like this podcast, uh, you're going to like the, the chat with Ken. It was a lot of fun. Uh, it was an after dark edition. So, uh, excuse, uh, any explicit language, but it did, uh, it was an after dark edition. Sometimes Corbs and I do that. And it was a lot more fun to get, uh, Ken to open up and just kind of be himself. So, uh, very proud of this, uh, episode that I had today with Ken Forkish, of Ken's Artisan Bakery and Ken's Artisan Pizza and Corbin Smith, writer at Vice Sports, Daily Beast, Willamette Week, and my co-host here on Locked On Blazers. Hope you like it. If you do, leave us a review. Let your friends know uh, that, hey, you know, this basketball podcast had Ken from Ken's Artisan on, and we thought it was good. So, uh, yeah, let people know, and hope you enjoy this episode of Locked On Blazers with Ken Forkish and Corbin Smith. Hello and welcome to... An August 28th, Tuesday night, special edition of the Lockdown Blazers podcast. I'm Eric Garcia-Gunderson, your host. I'm joined by Corbin Smith. And today, our guest, James Beard Award winner, 
the mastermind of Ken's Artisan Pizza, Ken's Artisan Bakery, Trifecta, oh, not Trifecta, excuse me, uh, check, tr- yes, Trifecta, Checkerboard Pizza. Um, Ken Forkish uh, is joining us on the show. And we're just, we couldn't be happier. Uh, boy, howdy, I'm happy to be here. A legend, a Portland culinary legend, Ken Forkish. Yes. Uh, uh, unbelievable to be speaking with you, Ken. Uh, big fan of your pizza. Big fan of your bread. Uh, big fan of uh, the croissants. Obviously, croissants. I, I, obviously, we're we're, yeah, we're oh, huge I'll fans. to be on your show. Um, yeah, this is a big fun. Cool. Let's talk about stuff. Yeah. No. So so you know I I, I kind of you know when we reached out to you about this uh, podcast, uh, you know it, it was. It kind of just started off as kind of this thing with Michael Russell from the Oregonian that we were talking about. And we started talking about your pastries on one of our shows. Um, so is that so you kind of heard of, of our podcast from that, that we were talking about your, your croissants? Yeah, it was, um, uh, it was during the middle of the NBA season. Somebody said, and I looked it up, and I listened to it, and I thought it was cool. It was fun. And yeah. the guy said nice things about me. So, I was, you know, it was nice. Yeah, we're nice guys. <laughs> yeah. We are. I yeah. mean, I mean so, and, and, we, we and we love a Corbin, good pastry. Corbin was the big dog that day. Oh, and, I'm, uh, that, please, that, I'm always the big got. dog. Please. <laughs> that's all I got as far as history is concerned. You're always the big dog. <laughs> awesome. Ken, how long have you been baking in Portland? Um, I've been baking in Portland since 2001. It was my first oh, my gig. My Lord. first, my first job as a baker was when I opened Ken's Artisan Bakery. You, you worked in tech, you worked in tech before this, correct? Yeah, I did. I did. Uh, from 1980 to 1999. And then I bailed. It wasn't fun anymore. And I wanted to do something with my hands. I wanted my own gig and I wanted to get the hell out of corporate life. Uh, so I mean, I sold everything. I sold my house. I sold everything I had to open Ken's Artisan Bakery and uh, got down to basically <laughs> breadcrumbs. <laughs> um, and finally, you know, we started to turn the corner and, and did okay, but it almost did not work. When, uh, when, uh, when, did you, did you go to culinary, did you go to culinary school or did, or did you, or did you just self-teach? Sort of, I mean, uh, the answer is sort of. So I, um, I, I, I split my old career. I had enough money in the bank to cut, couple years off and sort of quasi learn how to bake um and open a new place and just go for it uh and instead of going to one place um i took uh a handful of classes one week classes two week classes uh so it ended up being five different schools where i was you know in and out real quick um and then i spent some good time at a couple of working bakeries in california uh and through all of these i got a lot of different perspectives it was uh, definitely more very uh, more valuable i thought to get this kaleidoscopic training than to go to you know just one place and learn one point of view um and so that's what i did ken why bread uh <laughs> it's such a fundamental food um and it has a historical basis and i don't really know how to answer your question i don't really know the answer why bread but I do know that I had been traveling a lot to France from the early nineties on. I was going oh, like, oh, oh, as we year. all, as we all were in the early nineties, certainly. Yeah. Especially Corbin and I. Yeah. 
Yeah. Were you seriously? Where did no, you go? No, well, no, I mean, no, no, <laughs> no we, we, we were, were children. We, we, yeah, we were in diapers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. I forgot. I got gray hair. Um, so, yeah. And uh, anyway, I was just sort of spellbound by the boulangeries there that, from, the, from the very first trip. And um, essentially, I was very inspired by this at the time. He was the world's most famous baker. He, he's uh, dead now. His name was Lionel Poilin. And Poilin's bakery in Paris was and remains extremely famous. And the breads that he made, now his daughter, uh, Apollonia, runs the bakery. And it's not just one place. It's, uh, but it's essentially, you know, he was, there, there was a period in time where uh, the quality of bread in France just hit a nadir uh, in the 70s and 80s. That it, it kind of bottomed out. It wasn't what it had once been, which was, you know, a bakery on every block, a craft, everything made from scratch. Um, that had gone kind of corporate. Uh, and Poilin sort of brought back rustic French country breads, made them once again extremely popular and extremely good in the center of Paris. And he wasn't the only one, but he was the one that had the greatest uh, impact uh, publicly. And I read about him in the mid-'90s. There was an article in Smithsonian Magazine. And I was like, man, he was baking bread in wood-fired ovens. And as soon as I read that, I said, that's what I want to do. And I just uh, was really lucky to have that kind of light bulb moment in my life uh, that didn't fuck me up. And it actually sent me in the direction that while it was really hard, uh, it worked and it was totally the right thing for me to do. That's super cool. So what, I mean, what brought you to Portland? Uh, specifically, like <laughs> early, very yeah. early in the days when Portland, I think, was starting to like be a culinary place too. Very yeah, it was early. A cool time to be here. Uh, it's really cool time to be here. Um, the leading culinary figures in Portland in 2001 were uh, Greg Higgins, Vitaly Paley, uh, and Philippe Boulot. And um, beyond them, um, there were a handful of good restaurants, but it wasn't the kind of place that it is right now, which really bootstrapped itself in the in the era when the first five or six years of or more really of my bakery but what drew me to portland is there's no straight lines in my life i had um i had originally planned to open a bakery in eugene and and, and keep in mind i grew up on the east coast i grew up in maryland in, in suburban dc and after college i moved to california worked in silicon valley in the 1980s and then went back to dc area just for work in the 90s and so when i decided to boogie that jam i got into like where do i want to be and it was at that point in time the center of gravity of my family my mom and dad my brother and sister and their families were all in eugene we'd all kind of migrated and i thought it'd be fun to be close to them and blah 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 um so i moved to eugene i bought a, a house on five acres and i was going to turn an outbuilding into a bakehouse and just put in a wood-fired oven and baked breads Living around town and call it a day, and that was going to be my gig. And then there was this big uprising in the neighborhood. They didn't want a bakery, and so um, what? It was really, yeah, it was very bizarre. They won. <laughs> I mean, Eugene. So, I, I went to school in Eugene, and you know, I love I love Eugene, but in its defense, sometimes it's just weird for weird's sake. Uh, <laughs> I, I love Eugene, but there are times when it gets like that. You know, uh, for I'm not the only one, for, but the situation in my life was a couple of times the worst things could have happened to me ended up being the best things. Uh, so uh, the bizarre part of that situation, because I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that happened in retrospect. I'm much better off in Portland for 
the trajectory of my career than uh, it, than what would have happened if I'd gone on in Eugene. But it was bizarre because I had neighbors arguing that the smell of baking bread on a daily basis would be like Sisyphus pushing hideous, a rock up Hideous, hideous. What a horrible thing. <laughs> it, well, it was just weird, man. It was weird, but, you know, when I got hit with that with really strong arguments from so many people, I, I do not want to live in your community. And so I bailed before I even, mentally, I bailed before I even got the losing decision. I didn't hire an attorney, and hire an attorney, and uh, there was a group of neighbors who hired a, a good land use attorney. I just sort of went through the circus to see what it would be like. But, um, no, I'm not there. That happened, and good riddance. Hey, yeah. no, it, yeah. definitely. I mean, and you so, know what, Eugene, Oregon, you are an enemy of this podcast now. <laughs> hey, okay, all right, Court, Court, maybe, maybe not, not, not so far, but, yeah, but, yeah, but you know, we, we don't want to, we don't want to shit on our southern neighbor, but uh, I'm hoping, it was not I'm, a pleasant I'm, moment. I'm, but uh, uh, I'm yeah. glad it happened, so yeah. all things worked out. Yeah, no, and so when you when you came to Portland, kind of how long did it take for you to kind of. I guess start paying attention to the the Blazers. Uh, I mean, I know it kind of comes when people move here. People kind of eventually kind of get into them. Uh, yeah, you know, it's a weird time in Blazers history. So I moved here yeah. in 2001. Yeah. Weird, but weird you mean that... totally awesome, right? Like super good? Well, yeah. I mean, they had won the NBA championship a while back, but they were good. And they had made the playoffs every year. And then, well, okay, they won the championship in 77. I know it's been a long time. <laughs> um, but uh, it was kind of, I, w- I was really so focused on my work and I didn't sleep much that in the first few years, sorry to say, I know it's a Blazers podcast, uh, but I just didn't have mental space to like, oh, totally. think about anything other than what I was doing. How dare you? Honest answer. How dare I? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I'm looking for a recovery time. <laughs> you need to help me out. Uh, oh, I don't know. No, I, I, I was just, I was just kind of kidding. I, I mean, I, I was exaggerating, but but. Well, I mean, it was the era of sort of also the era of Rashid and the, the jailblazers too, and so yeah, it's kind of after was the sort of days. tentative steps on my part to becoming the Blazers fan, which yeah, I have been. Um, yeah, for for many years since. Um, friend, friend of the podcast, Rashid Wallace. Not really a friend you of know, the podcast. I mean, we 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 supported Rashid because we were Blazer fans way back when. But, uh, I mean, who who I guess got you into the Blazers? Like like which era, and, and what time uh, in your was, life did they kind of find you? Oh no, this all happened at Ken's Artisan Bakery. Um, one of my key guys who started working for me in two thousand two, Theo Taylor. Still works for me. And he has been a hardcore NBA fan, was a serious Blazers fan. And after a while, I started paying attention to what he was talking about. I got, oh, that's kind of cool. Plus, it's our only you know big league game in town. But um, started going to games in the mid 2000s was when, um, you know, when I went home, I did something other than get high and go to bed. And <laughs> uh, I, I tell you, working as a baker is freaking hard, man. Uh, but Anyway, I, I think Blazers are, are awesome. Plus, um, uh, so I, I'm sorry, brain fart on my end. Uh, who was the coach in the early to mid-2000s? Uh, Nate McMillan, I think. Yeah, Nate, right. So uh, I thought Nate McMillan was the coolest guy. I, there was one time, it was probably 2005, 
and I go into Paley's place where um, I was, we, yeah, we, I've been friends with Vitaly for a long time. And I sit at the bar to have dinner and coach McMillan sitting right next to me. And first thing he says to me is, you want me to move her? Am I crowding you? And I go, holy shit, coach. You're like, <laughs> it's like the nicest thing. <laughs> Am I crowding you? Can you imagine an NBA coach at a bar, somebody sits next to him and him looking over and say, hey, am I crowding you? Seriously. <laughs> that now, is, this guy yeah. played, this guy, uh, now, am I not, not mistaken, didn't Nate uh, play for the Washington Bullets when they won in 79? No, oh, I, he, no, no, that's no, a little, that's, that's a little, little bit, early. Yeah, that, yeah. I think he, he, play, he played for the the Sonics, um, back then, but but not back then, but in like the early nineties. In the early nineties, he played he uh he played against Jordan in the ninety six finals. Did he ever play for in, in DC? Hmm. I don't or, think so. I, I don't know. Mostly a Pacific Northwest legend. Are, 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 are we? Could it have been Mo Cheeks? Uh, yeah, that's yes. what we're talking about. Because okay, he played for Philadelphia, and the, that has the red, yeah. white, and blue. I can definitely see that it was Mo Cheeks, because that was a little bit yeah. more well, early 2000s. I don't know about you guys. My memory is really creative. That's fine. <laughs> oh, no, mine's no, it's incredibly. I... Fill in the blanks. All right, so forget what I said about Nate. I'm sure he's awesome. <laughs> well, maybe, no, <laughs> actually, but that sentence was actually about Mo Cheeks. <laughs> yeah, it was. Also, <laughs> you know, I, yeah, great. That was the Paley's place. Hey, cool. That was Maurice. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Yeah, even cooler. Mo Cheeks. Uh, are we NBA, recording NBA, right now? <laughs> uh, we, yeah, yeah, we are. We are. Uh, but but we can edit. You know, don't so don't worry. Whatever. About it. Yeah, it doesn't no, matter. It, it's okay to be real. Yeah. Um. So I mean, I guess another question I want to ask you is, do you have a favorite when it comes to baking? Like, do, like, like, you know how, you know, do you have a, a pref, you know, a preference when it comes to the, all the things that you create? Yeah, I do. Um, so, uh, I think my favorite bread from, so I had two bakeries, uh, my original bakery, Ken's Artisan Bakery. Um, and then when I opened Trifecta, Trifecta Tavern and Bakery in 2013, it was, I built a little bakery there because there were more things I wanted to do bread wise. But I couldn't really add anything to the roster of things that we made at Ken's Artisan, and I didn't want to take anything away. So Trifecta was a chance for me to both further my craft as a baker and to do some new, new stuff that I've been working on. Um, and uh, while I have a lot of favorites at my original, um, I'd say of all the breads I've ever made, my country bread number two at Trifecta oh, Tavern is ben, my all-time Ken, favorite bread. Ken, it is unbelievable to hear you say that. It is absolutely my favorite bread that you make. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it's, that. It's, it's, not it dissing, is, it's not dissing my original place at all. Oh, no, of course. Oh, no, 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 of course not. But, like, uh, there's just something about eating bread that is, like, equally moist and earthy. That really does like kind of blow your mind a little bit. Cool, man. I'm glad you see it that way. We use a blend of we. There's a lot of flour in that bread dough that comes from uh, Camas Country Mill just outside of Eugene, and it's a, a whole grain spelt flour. It's just so good. Yeah, it, and it has this nutty flavor to it. It's freshly milled. Yeah, you know, when we mix it in our dough, that flour is just like a week or two old. Uh, it's. Um, yeah, uh, that bread um, is. I feel like there's really. I I got to a point where I said I'm kind of I'm not done, but you know, that bread sort of 
met the point that I've been reaching for throughout my entire career. That is unbelievable. It felt it, it felt a little like Mona Lisa. <laughs> you know, we sell like three or four loaves a day too. It's amazing. <laughs> Can a second question? Can a second question about trifecta? Sure. Corn croissants. Yeah, yeah. Please. When did this get into your head? So what was going on when I came up with that? Yeah. Wait. Wait. Yes. When? When did the I? When did you say, I need to make croissants out of corn? Um, I was cooking at home, and yeah, I bought some corn at the farmer's market, and so I'm shucking the corn. And, you know, I boil it for a couple minutes and I quit eating it. It was really good. And then I realized I threw away almost all the corn. Like the cob went into the garbage and, and the compost and the husk and the silk. And like, we don't use most of the corn. And so I started thinking and extrapolated into what ended up being a corn croissant. And essentially what that product is, is we take we cut the kernels off the cob. Uh, we run them through a juicer, so we have the corn juice to hydrate the dough. Uh, we take the cobs. Uh, we make. We just add water, put them in a pot, cook them down for 20 minutes, and make a broth, concentrated broth from the cobs. Uh, we took the silk. There's always a little, there's milk in a croissant dough always, um, and so we soaked the milk in the corn silk overnight. And then I said, so I got to do something with a husk. And so I put the husk in the bread oven uh, for like 15 minutes until it was really dark and then let it cool off. And it was dry and dark brown to black at that point. And I ran it through a coffee grinder. Uh, so basically we had ground up roasted corn husk. And is that, what the, the is that what the little flakes are? Those are the brown, the dark black. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my Lord. Wow. So the goal was the goal was to use the entire corn to make a product and the corn croissant was that. And then the glaze that goes on it is a bourbon glaze because bourbon's made from corn. Certainly. Certainly. And corn. Yeah, that, now, yeah. The interesting thing is, is when you eat the corn croissant and we run it only during when corn is local corn is in season. So basically through from July through the end of September. Uh, so it's got another month and we're, uh, it's done until next year. But the interesting thing about it is, when you bite into it, it doesn't taste strongly of corn, despite my efforts. <laughs> it just tastes good. And then you start to notice the corn when you exhale. It's sort of that retro gusto. And, or when you, when you put the croissant right up to your nose and you give it deep inhale, you smell the corn. Uh, it's funny. You really don't taste the corn strongly until after you've eaten it. That is... That was that was uh, an excellent, incredible description. I'm a little intimidated by you, Ken. Do you know that? There's something about talking to somebody whose food you eat and think is excellent that kind of like it kind of unnerves you a little bit. Why is that? I don't know. Why is it intimidating? Because me, it sounds like we're just uh, a couple guys, you know, sitting around having a beer. Yeah, that's you know what? That's fair. Chew, plug, plug, plug. Well, I'm actually drinking a Negroni. What? What do you got? Oh. Oh, um, I'm actually drinking a, a polar seltzer water right now. I'm uh, I'm uh, licking I'm licking my hand. <laughs> it's the only moist thing I have. Ken, gotta ask you, gotta ask you about pizza now. Oh, yes, please. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> two, 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 okay, two, we we've got two major top. First off, Ken's artisan. It's fabulous. 
Uh, where do you, Ken, I got to ask you, where do you stand on the Ken's versus a pizza debate? Ken versus what? A pizza Shoals. Oh, a pizza Shoals? Uh, Brian makes an awesome pie. Um, Ken's Artisan Pizza is a completely different style of pizza from a pizza Shoals. It's impossible okay. right. to compare the two. Um, they're both sit-down restaurants. Uh, and uh, it's apples and oranges to me. Yeah, I'm a fan of Brian Sangler. I'm a fan of a pizza Shoals. Uh, and... I don't really even see us as competitors because we do very different things. I do. All right, you do. You do. You do. I'm sorry I even brought it up. Fair enough. No, it's okay. Um, I uh, it's a, a chance to give someone a give somebody admire a shout out. How about that? Hell yeah. No, that's who, who, who else? Who else is doing good work in the pizza scene right now? Um, Anthony Mangieri at uh, Una Pizza Napolitana in New York is exceptionally talented. Uh, I've always there's a lot of a lot of guys I look up to, and he's uh, he's high on that list. The other people I really look up to are um, a few guys in Naples, Enzo Coccia from La Notizia, uh, Franco Pepe at uh, Pepe and Grani and Cayazzo, which is about a 45 minute drive outside of Naples. You know the the thing is is there's like no one pizza that sits on the top of the mountain top. It's everybody makes pizza in their own style that their oven gives. Um, and if you pursue your pizza as a maker with integrity, with good quality ingredients, and you're like totally on it, you know, you, you're not just sitting at home every night. Well, shit, I'm at home every night, but <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you, yeah. You're really going for what you think is really good. And whether it's Ruby Rosa in New York or, Polly G's in Brooklyn or on and on and on and on. Uh, there's so many examples of pizzas that are just really, really a pleasure to eat that are nothing like each other. <laughs> can have you, uh, can have you, uh, the, the, the gentleman behind Scotty's, he used to work for you. Is this the case? No, that's not true at all. The Scotty's is an awesome guy. Uh, we have a great relationship and I really admire him, but no, he never worked for me. Who did he, did he, did he work for Brian? Maybe I don't remember. Anyway, that's, that's you, my, you, pardon. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, uh, ask him. I don't really know his uh, resume. Uh, uh, but, but, I uh, admire him and I like him. Yeah, that's my right. I mean, I, I'll, I'll do, I'll do respect to what you're doing over a checkerboard. But right now, that is hard, my pizza jam. That's that's some cool. beautiful stuff they got going there. Cool. It's like eating pizza when I was a child again. Nice. Nice. Where did you grow up? Uh, here. Here in uh, Vancouver. Yeah? Yeah. 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 Uh, and Corbin, where did you grow up? Uh, I, I this is this is Eric. This, <laughs> this is, is Eric. This, this is Eric. No, no, no. I have a 50-50 chance, man. No, 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 no. Hey, it's it's Sorry. all it's all right. We we just met like five <laughs> minutes ago, but uh, I just finished my drink, so I'm right. feeling calm. <laughs> no, I, so, I mean we're both. I'm from Salem, Oregon, and Corbett is from Vancouver, uh, Washington. So, uh, you know, I, I I guess my pizza is not anything like the pizza that I like associate with childhood is not really at all a style that we find up here. Um, That's okay. You know what? It doesn't matter. That's right. the thing. That's and, the thing. Yeah. You know, some people feel like if they grew up in the Bronx, you know, or Lower Manhattan or wherever, um, you know, they've got some pizza advantage over you, and that I think that's horseshit because I really think that 
everybody's favorite pizza is the pizza they grew up with. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, right, 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 right here in my neighborhood, I got Bordalami's pizza up here in Hazeldale. They just make it's just like a big thick slab of dough, and then they put a bunch of sauce and cheese on it, and I and it's just, you know, it's just what I'm looking for a lot of times. The point of the food is like to not only nourish you to make make you happy, and if it does that, then that's all that's enough said. Eric Eric makes a claim about Salem Pizza <laughs> that I'm that I that I'm wondering I'm I just have I'm just wondering if you have any knowledge about this. Eric claims. That there is a distinct style of pizza that is made in okay, Salem, right, Oregon. Right. I think it's more a regional pizza, like the Willamette Valley, because okay. I've, I've conferred with Tim Brown, who is who is from no, yeah, Albany, yeah. who says that they have a similar style of pizza to the pizza I'm talking about, which is uh, so thin crusted. Late like, Albany. Yeah, it's like thin crust, you know, cornmeal on the bottom. It's crunchy. Uh, you know, on the crust, and you know it's heated up very hot. Uh, the the pepperonis get to how you have them at uh, at checkerboard, where they kind of get that cup, uh, that little uh, that yeah, effect. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, cupping is a thing. Yeah, yeah, the, the cupping. So, and that's kind of the style. There's like three places in Salem that have it. Uh, it, it Paddington's Pizza and Wallery's Pizza, and so this is just you know I've been. Tell, talking, telling people about it, but nobody seems to believe me. <laughs> well, you know, the, the funny thing, I mean, you can like them, have the best pizza in the planet and be in Salem, and who's going to know outside of like that area, right? Right, no one. Sorry, I offended everybody in Salem. So. <laughs> no, no, go but right ahead. No, no, no. After a while, is it the, you know, are we playing for the media? Or are we what we should be doing? is playing for the people that we serve every day. Right. And also it's supposed to be, you know, like part of the pizza, like, I mean, out, you know, in certain cases, especially somewhere like checkerboard is the utility of it and the ability to get it and know what you're getting and it be kind of close by and it, you know, be a neighborhood type of thing. Yeah. Which is weird in a, uh, it's kind of an upscale food hall, but I'm really proud of the pizza we do at checkerboard. You know, the Oregonian, did like this uh, uh, March Madness thing where they took a lot of all the places in Portland to do pizza by the slice. And then they did all these different rounds and checkerboard pizza came out with best slice in Portland, Portland. And I was so proud of that uh, because being an East coast guy, you know, I grew up with pizza by the slice mm-hmm. and whole pizzas and they were different beasts altogether. Uh, but I wanted to do, when I opened checkerboard, I wanted to do a great slice joint and, so getting best slice in Portland was really something I was super proud of. And that was Michael Russell. And, uh, very enemy for enemy was, of the podcast, awesome. Michael Russell. Yeah, man. Thanks, Michael. <laughs> I, yeah, I, yeah. No, and I, I agreed with that. I, I, I haven't had a better slice. I, I'm in your camp, Ken, as far as the best slice at a, you know, buy the slice place is my favorite. In, in in town, I know that uh, Corbin has something to say though. Uh, uh, Ken, have you heard of this website, The Ringer? No. Uh-uh. Okay. Well, what they do. It's uh, it's this Bill Simmons website, sports, pop, things of that nature. Food today, as well. Today they released a uh, a graph and an article about uh, the best chain pizza joints, and there's just something so perverse to me about the well, idea. What? 
There is no best. When it comes to chains, there is no best. They're money-making machines. That's all they care about. Exactly. Look, the best pizza chain is the pizza chain near your house that some dude operates. 100% of the time. Cast all of this stuff into perdition for all I care. You know, you you give you give me you know Bordelami's, you give me blind onion, uh, you give me uh, you give me Ken's, you give me checkerboard, you give me Scotty's, a hundred rally pizza up here in Vancouver, a hundred days out of a hundred. That's what the I'm taking. The up in America is people not going to places owned by people that are actually at the business. Exactly. Yeah. You know, why support why support Domino's or Papa John's when you can go to a place owned by Luigi or Bob or Jim or John? You know, they actually are show up at their place. What's more American than that? Showing up at the place where the owner is there. Seriously. Absolutely. No, hey, hey I, uh, you're not going to find any argu- arguments to the contrary for me. I'm, so, I'm, I'm so, always a big purveyor of the local slice, the, ut- <laughs> the utilitarian slice. It's a waste of flour, these people. <laughs> uh, man. So, Ken, Ken uh, aside so, uh, from Pete, uh, oh, continue. No, I ask. Yeah, I know. I want to ask you guys about the Blazers. Um, last year was such a high. They had, you know, they were had one of the best records in the West, and then all of a sudden they ran into like the New Orleans juggernaut in the playoffs, <laughs> and we thought they were going to be really maybe go to second round, you know, at least, and then that happened. What's what's going on? What what's the what do you think is going to happen this year? Corbin and I differ on this um, because I think if they can get some things like some health things to continue to go their way, if uh, you know, if there's some consistency from players that haven't been consistent in in the past, uh, like Mo Harkless who was hurt uh, at the end of the year, and Damian Lillard also That's got awesome. hurt. Yeah, and, and and Dame also got hurt right before the playoffs. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I do think, uh, you know, it, I think they're, it's worth keeping together for another year. I like how the young guys – I like how Collins uh, projects. I like, uh, you know, Seth Curry as an addition. I think he – they might I, – I like the idea for them to shoot a lot of threes this year with the t- group they have. But Corbin is of the opinion that they should trade C.J. McCollum and try something else. Yeah, oh, I man. think uh, I think I think this whole uh, two point guard lineup thing. I think it's uh, I think it's an experiment that's not going to work out long term. I think uh, I think uh, trying to see what you could get for CJ is the good move. I think uh, honestly, look, you know, I've what got we a- got though is we, we we got Paul Allen in our camp. I mean, it's his team. You know, how about two awesome point guards with badass big man? See, 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 see. This is what I'm saying, Corbs. You know, why the hell can't we do that? It's not a matter of money, is it? I mean, well, it, it, the, sal- the salary ca- the salary cap presents some problems, but in theory, yeah, because they, they they they're afraid to play the luxury tax. Last year they avoided it, um, and they tried to get Demarcus Cousins this year, but they ran into a problem because Cousins has the same agent as Yusuf Nurkic, and <sighs> alleged and ale- and so. If the Blazers would have signed Cousins, it would have killed the market for Nurkic, and would have cost him, you know, millions upon millions of dollars. So yeah, but I think any any argument that ties it down to an individual player is missing the point. Okay. 
there's more than just one DeMarcus. Um, DeMarcus is like a physical yeah. presence on the floor. He's a badass. And I would have loved to have seen him in the player's uniform, Blazers uniform. But seriously, do you think that if the argument goes down to, you know, how you configure a team to one individual player and why that didn't work, then you're not – something's wrong. Are you saying – You're never saying, going to get there. You're are you saying fire, there fire Terry? Is that what we're doing? No, I don't think so at all. I think Terry Scott's oh. is uh, – I had doubts in his first year, but ever since then, I think he's – Made uh, the team perform as well as it can. Look, no, you asked me, ask me. There's only one move component. to make. You asked me. There's only one move to make. C.J. McCollum for Lamarcus Aldridge. It's time, baby. Come home. Uh, uh, <laughs> have you had Olshi on your show? No, no, no. We have not. We have not. No. He he only he will only make time for us if if we were uh, an ESPN podcast. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it, it's very clear the way the NBA works is if you don't have like big time stars under the bucket, you're not going to get there. No, it's true. That this is a thing that um, you know I talked about. Uh, I I'm going to be a guest on a forthcoming episode of the Dunked On podcast, um, so check that out when it comes out. But I said on that we were talking about it, it was like a season preview, and the thing that I the thing that I ended on well one of the things I ended on was. The fact that this team is so bad at scoring right near the basket. Like, they, yes. they, they, they're really good at shooting, and or at least Damon CJR and, you know, some of their guys on the outside, some of their, you know, not as skilled guys can also shoot sometimes like Aminu. But they're all – and Nurkic, everybody who shoots on under the basket, except for Ed Davis who's gone – couldn't make any is wasn't a good finisher and that is like i mean that is such a drag yeah you know, we started out this whole thing uh dissing on on sheet but you know that kind of presence down under the bucket is the sort of thing that complements a couple strong outside shooters yeah no definitely i mean if they had a presence and that's uh, honestly in the best moments that they've had recently have always have been with nurkic playing like really well or at least being efficient and scoring in the post and scoring and dunking and doing all those things and uh you know whether it's him or zach collins you know some, yeah i think some, Nurkic just needs a compliment yeah well yeah no i mean it, 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 if some of those guys on the outside can be more consistent uh maybe that opens Nurk a little things. space yeah. yeah 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 when it when it's entirely up to the guys on the outside then they just carry too much weight that's the way i think yeah, I think I think that's definitely for real, and I I, I think the, the 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 margin for error when it's just Dame and CJ doing everything is so you know tight. Yeah, because, it's, yeah it, it's a, that's not gonna work. Yeah, if if they if they have an off night, you're done. You know, and that happen that oh that you know that doesn't happen. You know, a ton, but it happens enough to where it limits them as a team. So they need to find some other help outside of that. I totally agree, and that's uh, that's going to be the challenge this year. You know, that's going to be you know I'm not going to say that they can't find that guy, but that's going to be one of the things that I think really determines this year for them is which one of these guys, which one of these guys that has been inconsistent for the past three years, which one of these guys can find some consistency and really. You know, yeah. How, you look at the lineup last year; they were also through April fifteenth. Yeah, and it's the extra 
uh, it's the extra factor that when you get into the playoffs that they didn't have, and that was a pretty clear lesson. Yeah, no, no, it was for sure. Um, Ken, outside of uh, bread, no, 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 no. I mean, unless you have you, you want to talk. I mean, are, are you? You got? Do you? How were you following right now, hoops? Felt, were you following the bullets uh, when you were younger? Since you were out the, in Maryland, the bullets. The bullets. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. The, I, I grew up. So I'm 60. I, I grew up a Washington Senators fan. My hero when I was a kid was Frank Howard, and um, and and the Washington Redskins were huge for me. You know, Sonny Jurgensen, Charlie Taylor, Larry Brown. Those were the guys that, yeah, you know, just kind of gave me goosebumps when I was 15 years old. Uh, at this point in my life. Um, I love baseball a lot. I, I moved to the Bay Area in 1980, and so I followed the A's and the Giants. Uh, you can't actually do that when you live there. you got to pick, but since I'm not there anymore, you know, I can follow both. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been following? Uh, I mean, obviously, obviously you've, been been avid... you've been stoked about the A's run lately, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, they're playing Houston right now. They're tied 3-3, three to three and uh, uh, there's a pretty good game going on right now. Is it hard living in a part of the country where baseball's a little sparse? Uh, no, because you can watch any game any day. You yeah, know, it yeah. was, you know, when in the 80s, it sucked being a Redskins fan all of a sudden I'm in California. I'd go to the library to get copies of the Washington Post and the sports page would be gone. I'm like, fuck! Another Redskins fan beat me to it. <laughs> oh, man. So, I mean, so you follow those Bay teams. You really, I mean, did you, what sports did you, did you grow up playing any sports? Uh, yeah, I played all the, all the land sports, uh, football, baseball, soccer, tennis, golf. Golf? Those are my thing. Yeah, still do. Oh, well, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, it's hard. I like it. Do you golf, Eric? I, I, I don't golf often. I have a set of clubs, but I don't golf often. Okay. Uh, it's just, it, it's just. Yeah, I mean. If you want to cuss a lot, go play golf. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I like playing it when I play. I mean, it's it's very uh, it, it's very challenging, but it can also be very relaxing. Yeah, it depends on who's playing behind you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. It, 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 I guess if you you know if you yeah if you, if you're on a steady pace, but you're not you know rushed, it feels good. When you're playing too slow, and then you get that person behind you where you feel really right, bad right. leaning on you every hole yeah and you're just like and you're just like all right just play through like this is you know like there's a get certain point hair. where i just give up and it's just like yeah get out of my hair uh, i'm not gonna you know win this pissing contest you know just just go <laughs> so yeah no i i uh, uh so no continue uh so we we, we talk bread we talk croissants we talk pizza do we, we like hit your hot buttons did you have a list no i know I, we <laughs> i did i actually did have a list <laughs> I have to. I mean, I. My, I would just like to say I'm I a think, list guy myself. So. Oh uh, yeah. well, I, I think my favorite, of course, because you're a baker. I mean, you got to you got to be able to have everything laid out. Yeah. Uh, organized. Organized. Yes. Uh, one of the things that one of my favorite things is how did you come up for the with the idea for like the 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 glaze on the croissants with like the raspberry glaze particularly i mean that's my yeah that's a that's my that's probably a, my uh, favorite that's a powerful glaze cool um so that's the trifectas uh ras we call it raspberry croissant technically the right name for that is an escargot 
And so it's a pinwheel shape on the pastry. And in France, it would be called an escargot. And everybody, everything is named literally there. And here I called it an escargot for the first year. And my counter staff kept complaining that everybody said, asked, uh, are there snails in there? And like, it's so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and, and not to like denigrate, you know, by the few customers who are actually buying the thing. But, you know, I, so finally I relented and we called it um, raspberry croissant, but even though it's not. So basically we take... Um, raspberries that we freeze, we pound them with kind of a wooden uh, thing. And then what you get are a lot of little raspberry pebbles because they're frozen. And then when we make up the dough, uh, we roll those pebbles into the dough and they maintain their integrity, which is the reason for freezing them and having them be hard when you roll it up. Uh, and then when you bake them, they sort of release all their raspberry goodness. And, but I wanted more raspberry flavor in it. So the glaze, and it's pretty too. Uh, the whole idea of the glaze is we take a raspberry puree and mix it with just a little bit of powdered sugar uh, to form the glaze. And I just wanted to intensify the raspberry experience. Mm. No, it's, uh, that sounds, it's, it's, so, it's so wonderful. It's one of my favorite things. Uh, another question, obviously you, you create food, uh, you create bread and pizza and, and pastries, um, when you travel, are you actively seeking those things out first when you want to go eat something? Um, it depends. I would say at this point in my career, not as much as I used to. Um, on the other hand, I went to like I went to Japan for the first time last year, and I was really fascinated by the fact that there are amazing French bakeries in Japan. Yeah, kind of. It's kind of like avant-garde, right? Too, out there with the uh, with the bakery uh, scene. I don't know, man. Like, uh, like I was really admiring this hot dog pastry. <laughs> yeah, fair <laughs> enough. This is kind of the opposite end of the of, from avant-garde. Um, so th- it probably is. It's, uh, but I I didn't see anything that was avant-garde. I just saw um, things that were technically executed extremely well. And what I admire was what I've already read into Japanese, um, uh, I don't want to say society, but in the Japanese bakeries and restaurants, other artisans, is that there is extreme discipline and something that is, you know, as a guy who has to hire people constantly, I find hard in this country to find. Uh, Whereas in Japan, I could see it when I was watching people working and I could see it in the finished product that there's, uh, people who work in the restaurants and in the bakeries who have uh, a very high degree of focus and discipline and they're not worried about what they're doing after work or they're not worried about what the soundtrack is on while they're present at their job. They're worried about making this croissant as technically perfect as they can. And it shows up in the food and it's not just pastries, it's in pretty much everything I ate there. Uh, and this is the difference between Japanese society and others, including ours. Um, I, I can't even remember my train, how my train of thought started on this. Uh, we were talking about the, what you, what you ate and what you're looking at, uh, when you, when you travel sometimes. And so oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. the bakeries uh, that you were at in Japan. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I go back to Paris every few years, anytime I'm there, cause that was my original muse. Uh, you know, I'm always checking out places that are like, oh, damn, they figured that out. And I sure haven't. 
Um, but yeah, it's also, I am at a point where I feel like we've matured our product lines in my places. So I'm not actually looking to do very much new. I'm just looking to take what we have already done and learn how to make it better. And then once a year, I get some inspiration to do something fun like a corn croissant and you know, lay into that with everything I got. That's super cool. Can I, can I have one more very important question for you? What's for dinner? No, well, sort of. You have, you are, you are getting one dinner in Portland, uh, and you can go anywhere. Where are you oh, going? Oh, man, don't do that to me. That's a hard question. Give us a top five. Give us a top five. <laughs> I, I suck at these, man. All right, all right, all right, all right. So Give my, us a sampling favorite, of what you've had recently then. A question like that. Somebody asked Jacques Pan, what's his favorite restaurant? His pat answer was always the one I'm eating at now. <laughs> <laughs> um, restaurants I admire greatly, probably very near the top of the list is Coquine. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Atula, uh, Jose is uh, really talented, and he's the only Spanish chef in town I know. And, uh, I mean, his restaurant is truly very, very Spanish. It's, it's a beautiful place. Um, you know, I can't not mention Trifecta Tavern. Do you know that we have a new chef at Trifecta as of 1st of July? I did not know that. Uh, Chris Domino. Uh, I'm uh, Rich Meyer, who is our original chef, did an awesome job. He moves on. And Chris Domino took over the kitchen seven, eight weeks ago, and he's doing a fantastic job. It's a slow rework of the menu. We're not trying to do things too fast. Uh, but I love the guy. He's from. He's a New Yorker. He uh, worked at Blue Hill at Stone Farms for a long time. Um, he worked at Telepan. He worked at Le Bernardin. Um, he was more recently chef at Clyde Common for several years. Um, I think Chris is at exactly the right point in his career to come into a restaurant, right? like trifecta where we kind of have all the toys and you know, he's got me egging him on to do the very best he can do. Um, so, you know, obviously I'm rooting for my own team. What is, what, what are you, what are you having say maybe after this, you know, you have a couple of drinks, maybe, uh, you, you smoke a little bit of weed or something and, and, and you want to have a snack or something at home and you want to make something for yourself. Like what? What is that that you like making for yourself at home? Um, so, this is a good time of year to ask because August is my favorite month of the year because we have all our stone fruits, nectarines, nectarines and peaches. They're like perfectly ripe and really good, and tomatoes and corn and all that other stuff. Uh, what I've been enjoying the last couple of weeks is I uh, cut up tomatoes and a stone fruit, um, a peach or a nectarine. And I toss them in a little bit of salt and let them rest for a little while. And it leaches out some of the juices. Uh, and then I'll toast a piece of my country bread. I'll pour all the tomatoes and stone fruit on top. And I'll just do a couple of glugs of olive oil, some salt and pepper. And um, I am good. This is, this is, <laughs> this is melting my brain. This, yeah. is, this, this, is, this, is, this is, this is erotica for people who love this is, uh, a good bite. That's nice, man. I'm, I'm glad. I, I mean, it's basically tomatoes and nectarines, or tomatoes and peaches on good bread this with is, a lot of olive oil. You're, you're a, this is, this is just not something that would even occur to me. But if you use shitty bread and shitty tomatoes and shitty stone fruits and shitty olive oil, it's not going to taste very good. 
Oh no. It's all about the so, ingredients. More I guess. people should go to Trifecta to buy a country number two. I, you know what? I <laughs> think I, story. I, I think I know what I'm gonna do. Uh, it's also available it's also available at Checkerboard Pizza. It should be noted. That is correct. Yeah. yeah. Punch it look, look, guys, I know that Ken is on the show right now. And that I couldn't say another thing. But Country Bread 2 is like legitimately my favorite bread I've ever eaten in my life. It's it's unbelievable. You know, you well, you you'll take I'll like to I like to hack a big slice off. I like to get a little butter on top of it. I like it to stick it underneath my broiler for a minute or two. And then I and then I apply a little bit of jam or honey or whatever, and that is just mwah, unbelievable. I believe you brought uh, a loaf of country bread number two uh, to a, a, a gathering that we had once uh, with uh, our friend Anand Pandy and yeah. Uh, yeah, you you came with a loaf and I think we had it with I think I had some with some grilled vegetables yeah I had yeah. I had like a little like a little crostini kind of situation um, but Ken uh, is there anything else you want us to touch on? You want to discuss on Lockdown Blazers with Corbin? I uh, is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything you want to tell the folks to check out, to be on the lookout for? Um, anything that you know you've eaten other than that amazing toast that you just described? A- anything? <laughs> any parting words before you we we kind of wrap this up? Um, support your local independent producer, whether it's a bakery, a pizzeria. You know, a farmer's market stand takes the extra 15 minutes out of your day. You know, these people work so hard for your money and for the products that they put out. And just avoid the chains because they're just, they're, they're, they're money guys behind the scenes. That's all they are. Respect. Hideous. Hideous. Respect. Ken, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it, man. Hey, thanks a lot for having me on. It's awesome. Like, I really enjoyed being with you guys. It was fun. Well, I'll try if I, if if we're if I'm ever in uh, one of the establishments when you're around, I'll try and say hi. Uh, yeah, throw something at me. Okay, <laughs> will oh. do. I won't. I won't Thank actually so throw much. anything really at you. But, okay. No, I, I, I'm gonna throw. I'm gonna throw something at you. <laughs> no, nothing hard. All right. Okay. All right. All right. Thanks, Ken. All right. Bye, guys. Thank all you right, very much. All right. Have a good night.